Glad to be back. Um, I love summertime um, because it's flexible and we get to go places and do things and be free of kind of uh, a lot of the normal uh, schedules and day-to-day things that we deal with throughout the year. But I I don't like it because I miss you people uh, when I am gone. And um, it's just a blessing when we're all together. We had a really great time uh, this past weekend over the weekend of the 4th. but on Sunday morning, I woke up, and I was like, ah, I miss my people, you know? So I'm glad that, uh, hey, thanks. Um, so, yeah, so I'm excited to get back into the Psalms some more. We're going to have a super cheery sermon about lament. So it's going to be uh, the best feel-good sermon you've ever heard. Um, uh, but before we uh, jump in, uh, if you want to go ahead and turn to Psalm 51, uh, if you've got your Bible or your app or whatever you use, um, we're going to be jumping around. Uh, there, there's kind of our first point, we're going to be looking at two psalms. Our second point, we're going to be looking at two psalms. So we're going to be looking at uh, 51 and 38. Yeah, 51 and 38. Um, if you want to kind of be ready for those um, in a little bit. Uh, I want to encourage you um, to bring your Bible with you um, whenever we gather, Sunday morning or for our MC gatherings. Um, I, I, there's nothing wrong with apps, and I use apps a lot, and I'm using an iPad today. So, um, but there's something about being uh, having a copy of God's Word in your hand when you can't double-click and swap over to text or to Twitter or whatever. Like, you're just—you're holding God's Word, and that's all you're holding. And uh, that, that got to be a distraction for me uh, for a while because uh, it was easier if you're holding the baby or giving the baby a bottle just to look at it on your phone, and that was great. But um, anyway, I encourage you to make sure that you have uh, your Bible with you and uh, to k- follow along, because I might lie to you. Uh, Blake said um, you know, a while back when he preached in Exodus that the only infallible thing we do on Sunday morning is read Scripture. So um, you need to read along with me and read along with Bryce and read along with all of us that preach and make sure that we're not um, getting it wrong. Um, so I want to encourage you with that. I uh, also want to uh, remind you and encourage you to, uh, to carry on with our two psalms a day commitment, reading uh, psalms. Um, you know, we were out of town, and so there were a few days that I missed, but uh, I've been getting back on the horse the past several days. So if, you, if you've missed a few days or if you've missed a week or maybe you forgot to start, uh, you can start today. It's okay. The point is to do it. The point is not to get behind in some unmanageable schedule, but uh, you wake up in the morning, you're eating breakfast, you're drinking your coffee, read a psalm and pray. Um, so thankful for Bryce's sermon last week about praying through the Psalms. Um, psalms have changed my prayer life personally. So, um, you know, read a Psalm at night, read a Psalm before you go to bed. Um, if you missed a few days, just jump back on. It's not a big deal. Um, the point is to be in the Psalms and to let them uh, affect you. So uh, today, our Super Psalm Summer Sermon Series uh, we are jumping into talking about lament, leaning into lament. Uh, it's one of the main themes that runs throughout the book of Psalms. Um, uh, you know, if you found yourself reading through the Psalms before, this, the lament, the lamentation Psalms are usually the ones that you, you kind of breeze over and skip through because they're hard sometimes to take in. Um, it's hard a lot of times to read that stuff. Um, but it is uh, a, a, an important theme in the Psalms, and it's one of the most uncomfortable for us to deal with as 21st century Christians. Uh, pain and sorrow have been a constant part of life since the garden. There's no way around it. Um, but we struggle to, I think, understand it. At, like, what place does lament and um, mourning and sorrow have in the life of a Christian? Because we're looking, you know, we look forward to the day when Jesus will return. He'll make all things new, and, and all of that is true and good and right. But 
we're still stuck with this pain sometimes. We're stuck with suffering. We're stuck with um, sorrow. And so it's hard for us to figure out what to do with that. Uh, so we're going to kind of examine some of that today. Uh, years ago, I was part of a church, and the church was looking for a new worship pastor, right? And in the meantime, they would just have different people come and sub on a Sunday, um, which is fun. It's fun to get to, to meet other people and with, for, as a musician to play with other people who are different than you, you know, different stylistically, or maybe they pick a song that you haven't thought to sing in a while. And so this guy came one day, and he had picked all the music, and it was quite different from what I was into stylistically, but I, I'm okay with that, you know, it was, it was fine. Um, but the thing that got me was um, his personality— it was very off-putting. Um, imagine Mr. Rogers, right? Mr. Rogers is wonderful, right? It's like Mr. Rogers, but if, if all of that kindness and empathy and whatever was completely fake and surface level, right? That was, that was kind of how this guy came off, uh, fake Mr. Rogers. And so it was like, it was like devious almost. Um, it really, it really uh, got to me, but I was like, okay, this guy's only going to be here for the day. It'll be fine. I don't need to just get too caught up on this. So we, you know, practice the music that morning, and then we start the service um, at, at uh, 1030 or whenever. And the first song uh, was kind of an upbeat one, uh, and so we're playing through it. It's going fine. And then he turns around and cuts off the band, and he literally scolds the congregation with a smile on his face for not singing like you mean it. You need to put a smile on your face, and you need to sing this song like you mean it, because Jesus loves you, and he is real, and he is here with us. And so you need to, if, you, if you're not feeling good, you just need to put a smile on your face anyway and sing. Like, basically, like, if you put a smile on your face and you sing it like you mean it, well, then eventually you're going to feel better and, you know, whatever. And I was just like, <laughs> what? Like, I didn't, know, I didn't know how to handle it. And so, like, he counted us back in, and we came back in on the second verse, and we finished the service, but it was like— Come on, fake Mr. Rogers. Let's chill out. Like, like is, is that really what we're supposed to do? Are we supposed to put a smile on and fake it till we make it? Or, you know, I mean, like, what if somebody had come in that day and they had a miscarriage the day before? You know? What if somebody's marriage was falling apart? What if somebody was in the hospital and sick, you know? And, like, and you got dude up here telling you put a smile on and get over it. That's not it, just so you know. You'll, we'll figure that out as we get through uh, our sermon today, but that is not it. Um, but what are we supposed to do? God is good all the time, and the gospel is true, and he is with us in every moment, yes. But we still have to deal with things that are painful. So what are we to do with that? Like, how do we reconcile these things? How do we deal with it? If faking it till we make it is not how we deal with it, how do we deal with it? Um, but this, is the, this seems to be the philosophy that a lot of, of evangelicalism uh, which is a word I don't like, um, has adopted. A lot of Christians, we um, have adopted this philosophy, and maybe not on purpose, um, but it's kind of been the prevailing trend for a few decades for us to create this positive, encouraging experience to present to the world, right? Um, it's not that we are denying necessarily how messy life can be, um, although some people do. Um, it's that we aren't talking about it, right? We avoid the subject. Um, we don't talk openly about anything that is unresolved, messy, negative, or uncomfortable, right? That's not what we do. Uh, we don't talk about the problems that aren't clearly and quickly solved by accepting Jesus as your personal Savior, right? Uh, we want the Christian experience to be neat and tidy, easily quantified and explained. Maybe we do this uh, in hopes that the world will see the Christian life as the shiniest car on the lot, 
you know, uh, with a lifetime guarantee of smooth handling and efficient gas mileage and climate control, right? We want to put our best face forward so that they'll, uh, that, that we'll be the ones they choose, right? It's kind of a, a consumerist mentality. Um, uh, and that's not life. Uh, you go into to Lifeway or turn on K-Love, and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's not that they're necessarily advocating anything bad, although sometimes it happens, right? It's not that. It's what, it's what we're leaving out. And that's important. We can't leave stuff out. Um, the, um, the reality of being a real person in the real world is an unmarketable reality. You're not going to sell anything with it, right? Um, and we have to come to grips with that because the gospel is the gospel, and it can do what it needs to do on its own. It doesn't need our help. Um, Kevin Twitt is a guy that I really look up to. He's an RUF uh, college minister at Belmont University. Uh, he founded Indelible Grace Music. Um, they take uh, centuries-old hymns that nobody's singing anymore, and they put new music to them so that we can sing them. We sang Come Ye Souls by Sin Afflicted earlier. That's an Indelible Grace uh, tune. Uh, so he, he's kind of dual roles as the mini- a college minister and, and, um, and putting these old hymns to music. Uh, he said this about his work with college students. He said, so many times I have these conversations where people tell me about their struggles, and they're convinced they must not be Christians because they struggle with doubts and unbelief. And I usually say something like, well, have you ever read the Psalms? The fact is that worship is formative. The songs we sing, and I would add uh, the culture we have as a church, are formative one way or the other. If we're singing songs where people feel like they have to put on a happy face to be a part of the worship, then we're lying to them about what the normal Christian life feels like. And eventually that comes home to roost. The way that we do everything we do says to the world around us, this is what the Christian life is like. And so if we do that poorly, then we are lying to people. Um, lament is and should be a, part, a normal part of the Christian life. Um, and we don't know how to do it necessarily, but it is a good and healthy thing. Uh, so today we're going to look at two different kinds of lament. Uh, and the first is lament over sin. We're going to start in Psalm 51. We're also going to hit up Psalm 38 and then a little bit of Psalm 32. So if you want to jot some of these down, they'll be on the screen, thanks to Blake and his hard work. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, lament over sin. We're all familiar with David's sin with Bathsheba, I think. We've heard the story a lot of times. He uh, kind of gets to a complacent plateau in his uh, kingship. And so he sends his army out into battle. He stays back at the crib. Uh, he goes up to hang out on the roof because he knows he'll enjoy the view a little too much. Uh, he invites a pretty girl up. They commit adultery. She gets pregnant. He tries to have her husband. Uh, he tries to cover it up. doesn't work. So he has her husband abandoned and killed in battle. And uh, he's kind of in denial for a good long time until Nathan the prophet comes to him and confronts him with it. And finally, David is forced to reckon with himself about what he's done. Um, and Psalm 51 is what he wrote in the aftermath of that. Um, so let's start uh, Psalm 51 in verse 1. Uh, it says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Let's pray. 
Lord, as we examine your word, I pray that you would open our hearts to it and uh, help us to understand um, what these psalms of lament um, show about who you are and about um, how we experience the hardships of life. And uh, I pray that we would apply this and that, uh, that our normal Christian life and our culture as a church would be honest about what life is like. Because when we're honest, um, we see the beauty of your presence in our lives um, in the hard moments and in the bright moments. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so A, under, under point one, is that we must acknowledge our sinful tendencies and our sinful actions. Uh, we have to get honest with ourselves and with God. We have to admit the truth of our sin instead of avoiding it or painting it in a more flattering light. We have to come to the point where we say, what I did was sin. I am a sinner. Full stop. Right? Nothing extra. No excuses. Uh, you may not have been the only one sinning, and the situation could have been complicated. And you may have had a very good reason to do what you did, and on and on and on and on. But sin is still sin. Like, that is true. It is, it is sin, period. We must confess our sin as sin without attempting to justify ourselves. We must abandon self-preservation and saving face, which is very scary. But it's the only way to deal uh, with sin, uh, by calling it what it is. I hate confrontations. I hate hurting people's feelings. I don't, I don't like acknowledging the elephant in the room. I just want to kind of ignore things, right? I want everything to just kind of be okay. Um, but there's no way to deal with sin other than dealing with it head on. Um, and David does this in Psalm 51. It took him too long to get to that point, but he's finally dealing with it at this point. Um, he admits to God that he knows his sin. His transgression is ever before him. He doesn't try to flatter it up. He didn't try to pretty it up with any, anything else. He just, he lays it all out there. This is what it is. This is true. This is my sin. He, he, admits, he admits that he sinned against God. It's not just an abstract mistakes were made or even I made a mistake. Because I made a mistake kind of has the, uh, I don't know, the connotation that this isn't really who I am. This isn't normally what I do. No, it is. It is what you do, right? This is who you are in your flesh. Um, and we have to, to we, we have an active role in our sin. And David admits that. Um, he said that he sinned against God. He puts God completely in the right and himself completely in the wrong. He doesn't, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, he says there's no gray area here. And uh, that's what we have to do. Side note, this is, this is how we should apologize to each other as well. Uh, don't, you know, don't try to make yourself look better. Just admit that you did something wrong and, and move on from it. If we don't deal with sin this way, we aren't dealing with sin at all. Um, and on top of that, he acknowledges not only that he sinned, but that he's been sinful since conception, right? In sin, my mother conceived me. We have to reckon with the fact that we have sinful tendencies. Um, God can and does purify us and sanctify us over time, but we will always have an inclination to sin. It's in our DNA. It's different for everybody, but we all have an inclination uh, to sin. What is yours? You know, like, to what sin are you inclined what is the thing that you tend to lean toward in your weaker moments? Um, you have to admit that to yourself. You have to talk honestly with your spouse or your good friends about that. We have to be honest with each other about that. Um, one of the things that is a part of a church flourishing is that we, are, we hold each other accountable for our sins. And not just that, not just that we hold each other accountable, we act preemptively for each other. You know, like if you know 
that so-and-so uh, tends to react with cynicism and anger, and you know they're dealing with something hard, well, you need to go to that person before they have an opportunity to blow up and, and make sure they're okay. And they might be okay, but maybe they're not. And maybe you can head off a bunch of things by going to someone, by knowing someone and going to that person. You know, if so-and-so uh, struggles with addiction and you know that they're dealing with something hard, go to that person. Um, if, if somebody has uh, the tendency to lash out or the tendency to withdraw and be, you know, in a deep, dark hole, well, if you know something's going on, then act preemptively. Go to that person. Um, this is a part of confessing our sins to one another. You know, like we have to be honest so we can hold each other accountable when you do something and so that we can act for each other before things happen. Um, and when we're honest with sin, that's what's possible. So we have to acknowledge our sinful tendencies and our sinful actions. Uh, and B, underneath here, is that we must be remorseful. Um, we're going we're gonna to look at Psalm 38, which is another one of David's psalms. Um, uh, psalm 38, we're going to start in verse 1. So B is we must be remorseful. Psalm 38, verse 1. David says this. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. For there is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand afar off. Stink and fester are not words that we like to use in the positive Christian experience, you know? Uh, but we must lament our sin and its effects. Uh, in this passage, David is clearly under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if this one is uh, linked to the same period uh, with the Bathsheba thing. It may have been, uh, but David messed up a number of times, so we never know. Um, we ha he's, he's under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and it's not a pleasant thing. Um, his sin is a heavy burden that has brought about mourning and groaning and isolation. You know, his friends have left him alone. He is sorry for it. Well, you can see that in his words. Like, he realizes the truth of his sin, and he is sorry for it. When we are honest about sin, this is the picture that we paint. If we have a clear view of God's holiness, we will see how offensive, heartbreaking, and ruinous our sin truly is. Um, we're probably mostly familiar with the passage in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah ends up in the throne room of heaven, right? And he sees the Lord high and lifted up, his train filling the temple. And his first uh, reaction is not, yes, Lord, you are great. Thank you. I love you. That was not his first reaction. His first reaction is, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. His first thought, his first awareness is how sinful he is, you know? And that's, that's how we should live our lives. We should live our lives understanding the holiness of God and understanding our unholiness. And if we do that, we're going to see sin for what it is. And we're not going to try to paint it in a flattering light because we'll see it as offensive and ruinous to ourselves and to those around us. 
God is not a big bully in the sky uh, that demands our servitude and takes pleasure in our groveling. He's holy. He's completely set apart in perfection, in goodness, and sovereignty. He created us for perfect fellowship with him, for limitless joy, and for a permanent sense of belonging. And he didn't mess that up. We did. And that deserves lament. That deserves a moment to stop and mourn the fact that that thing is broken. That thing is gone. It is irreparably gone. Um, and so it deserves remorse. It deserves mourning. And a healthy amount of fear. You don't want to talk about fear either. But I mean, we ruined our relationship with God because of our sin. We killed something beautiful. And that's, that's going to bring a little bit of fear and some mourning. Because God is just, he sees terrible things for what they are. He doesn't spin it in a particular direction to make himself look superior. He doesn't have to. He's honest. And the honest truth is that our sin deserves eternal punishment, death. And our sin will be punished, either by our separation from God or through Christ's atonement on the cross, one way or the other. When we gloss over the horror of sin, we insult God's sense of justice. If your sin isn't damningly offensive— then why would God send his son to be sacrificed on our behalf? If it's not that big of a deal, if it can be doctored up to not look so bad, then what's the point of Jesus coming in the first place? You know, like, why would he do that? It, it, it doesn't make sense. There's that verse in uh, uh, When I Survey the Wonders Cross, uh, the uh, Isaac Watts hymn, and um, it talks about um, love and sorrow meeting. It's, it's, it's where God's love and God's justice meet. The cross is where that happens. Um, <clears throat> so our sin is terrible, and God's love is great, and they coexist in there. But sin is ruinous. Sin ruins us personally, and it ruins everyone else in our lives. We must consider this too. Many times we just want to soothe our consciences so we don't feel bad anymore, but sometimes your sin will hurt someone else deeply. They might choose to forgive you, but it doesn't mean that something isn't ruined. God forgave Moses, but he still didn't get to go into the promised land. God forgave David, but he still lost his child, and he suffered the reproach of being found out. Jesus forgave Paul, but he still had to earn the trust of every believer he ever met. Spouses may forgive for abuse or for infidelity. Business partners might forgive for being cheated. Um, A friend might forgive harsh, angry words. But only time and God's grace can truly heal the wound that sin creates. And when it does, there's usually still a scar. It's not like we can just forget about this. Sin ruins, and God sees it this way, and we have to let ourselves see it that way too. If we don't, then that's a problem. That's a big problem. It, 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 that's the place where we can start propping ourselves up and making ourselves not look so bad. We have to let ourselves feel the gravity of sin and mourn it. This kind of lament is absolutely and completely necessary in the, the, the real day-to-day Christian life. But Thankfully, graciously, this sort of lament is not endless, and it's not pointless. It's a lament that leads to mercy, and from mercy to grace. Um, Toward the end of Psalm 51, uh, David wrote uh, in verse 17, he said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So C, underneath this point, is that God grants forgiveness. God grants forgiveness. And we're going we're gonna to look at another psalm of David's in Psalm 32. So if you want to turn over to Psalm 32, we're going to start in verse 1. Our lament is not pointless. It leads to mercy and to grace. 
Psalm 32, in verse 1, it says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So the broken and contrite heart, he does not despise. Uh, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For the believer, Christ has taken our place in punishment and offers us true forgiveness. It's not a finicky forgiveness that you can lose, that you have to walk on eggshells with. It's forgiveness through grace. It is permanent forgiveness. Grace doesn't diminish the severity of sin. It doesn't diminish how truly terrible and horrible it is. And it doesn't erase all of sin's consequences. But as Romans says, because sin has abounded, grace abounds all the more. Grace gives us a future. It blazes a trail forward into a life that doesn't deny the reality of sin, but isn't bound by it either. We don't mourn as the world mourns. We don't lament without hope. We lament because of our hope. We lament our sin because Jesus has given us the grace to see it for what it is and to be able to repent of it. Without Christ, we're blind to the truth of our sin. Praise God that he gives us eyes to see what our sin is and to lament it. Lament that we are not yet what we will be. Um, Okay, quick side sermon. I'll pull a Bryce. Um, Here's what I don't mean by lamenting our sin. I don't mean continually beating yourself up for past sin that you've repented of. Uh, continually repunishing yourself for past sin is spiritually and emotionally harmful. Um, there were even, and some of you have probably heard of these guys, there were people uh, throughout church history who have practiced self-flagellation. This is where, where people literally whip themselves to remind them of how terrible they are, how sinful they are, and to, to purify themselves uh, of sin, right? Which sounds utterly ridiculous, right? If we saw somebody with a whip whipping themselves, we would think that person needs some serious mental help, Right? But isn't this what we do with sin? Isn't this what we do mentally? You know, if we've done something that we're truly sorry for and we really feel bad about it, we don't want to let it go because there's some part of us that feels better when we just keep thinking about it and thinking about how sorry we are for it and feeling bad for it and over and over and wallowing in our guilt and our shame. That's not what Jesus intended for us, right? He wants us to acknowledge the truth of our sin and he wants us to lament it. And then he wants us to move on. Um, listen to what uh, Romans 6 says. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. The passage, this clearly says we shouldn't let sin reign in our bodies. We shouldn't present our bodies as instruments of righteousness, unrighteousness. God is holy, and he expects his people to pursue holiness. But the key is this. We can pursue holiness, 
right? Before we were unable, but now we can. We can obey him because in Christ we are dead to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us. The Holy Spirit reigns in us now. So because of God's grace and because we're no longer slaves to sin, we are free to obey. We must consider ourselves to be in this state. We have to look at ourselves and, and almost, I, I, you know, there's the, 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 the group of people who are all like, name it and claim it. You say some, a good thing and God will give it to you. Okay, well, no, God has already given us this. So when we claim this, we're claiming something of Scripture. Look at yourself and claim by God's grace that sin no longer has dominion over, over you because he, it doesn't. The Holy Spirit reigns in you now. You're going to sin. And when you sin, you should lament. You should see sin for what it is and what it does to you and the people around you. You should mourn it as you confess your sin. And then you should repent. Turn away from your sin because you can. Because we are able through the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus told the woman who'd been caught in adultery. They brought her out and they were going to stone her to death. And um, everybody ends up leaving after Jesus intervenes. And um, Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Now, from now on, go and sin no more, right? She was, she'd got caught sinning, right? Maybe she was set up. Maybe it was a big deal, but she was sinning, right? Jesus said, go. I don't condemn you. Go. Sin no more. And that's what he says to us. Because of his sacrifice on the cross, because of his grace, he doesn't condemn us. And he says, now go and sin no more. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Um, you will always regret sin, But if you walk around punishing yourself for something you've repented of, you're saying that the blood of Christ is not enough to atone for that sin. You're saying that you can cleanse yourself of that sin. You're saying that God needs help saving you. This is self-worship. It's it's like a sneaky form of idolatry. Um, It may sound like Oprah self-help when I say this, but if God has forgiven you of a sin and you have repented of it, then you have to forgive yourself. That's an important thing. You have to forgive yourself. It doesn't mean that you pretend it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that it wasn't bad. It doesn't mean that you don't regret it. But it means that you forgive yourself because God has forgiven you and you move forward to the future that grace has for you. So, all right, so that's point one, uh, lament over sin. Uh, our second point is going to be lament over circumstances. Lament over circumstances. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be looking at Psalm 88 and Psalm 42. Uh, here's a quick side note, too. Um, I, I think up there, yes, uh, we're looking at Psalms 88 and 42. But when we're looking at Psalm 88, we're not looking at Psalms 88. We're looking at Psalm 88. It's one of those little things. It's like when people say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It just makes me crazy. Uh, so it's, uh, it's uh, Psalm 88, but Psalms 88 and 42. Um, there's your little nugget of useless trivia um, that you don't need. Um, so Psalm 88, starting in verse 1, says this, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down into the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves. Life is hard. That's point A under, uh, under two here. Life is hard. It's really hard. It's harder than we thought it would be as kids. It's harder th- than we thought it would be when we first trusted Christ. Um, life doesn't always make sense. 
And it can seem sometimes like God isn't actually in charge, like he doesn't really care for us. We have to uh, often grapple with serious questions that don't have easy answers. And this is where Heman the Ezraite finds himself in Psalm 88. He's crying out to God. His soul is full of trouble. He feels like he's about to die. He's exasperated. He's overwhelmed, and he's in darkness, spiritual darkness. Like, and and if, we're going to read more of Psalm 88 in a minute, but if you read the whole thing, it doesn't, like, come around at the end. Like, it's a full picture of him at his worst. Uh, it reminds me of the first part of Psalm 42, which we prayed earlier. Psalm 42, starting in verse 1, says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. There's a song, uh, As the deer panteth for the water, and it's very cheery, right? And so I always thought this psalm was like a really just cheery number, you know, like, yeah, like a deer. A deer wants to drink water. I love God. No, this is, it, it, it's thirsty, right? As a deer is thirsty, who's been parched. As a deer pants for flowing streams, because they aren't around, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Have you ever felt this way? Where day and night your tears are your food? Um, If you haven't, I'm sorry to tell you that you will. Um, It's a fact of life. You will feel like you are alone and exhausted in a deep, dark, hopeless pit. Um, It happens to some people when they're young. There were people that I went to high school with uh, whose friends died in car accidents or whose siblings um, were killed unexpectedly. Um, And for some people, it doesn't happen until they're older. But at some point, you will come face-to-face with troubles that you literally cannot imagine. Someone close to you may die, maybe unexpectedly or without clear answers. You might get sick with a terrible disease. You may endure pain and trauma at the hands of someone you love deeply, or maybe even from a complete stranger. You may struggle with mental illness that makes you feel alone and without hope. Or you may be on the receiving end of the explosion of someone else's depression or grief. You may lose everything and everyone you love. You may be falsely accused. You may be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And you have no control over any of it, period. That is life. It's not all of life, but that is life. What is the Christian to do with this? Where are we to go? How does a Christian deal with a good friend in the throes of substance abuse? How do we deal with the neighbor who's convicted of a crime and sent to jail? What do we do when someone we love fails morally? What is our reaction when a dear friend's marriage falls apart? Or when no matter how much we pray or medicate, a relative's chronic pain won't cease? How do we respond to pregnant teenagers or to a mom who chose an abortion? Politics aside, what if when you thought about the best options for your family, you could think of no better choice for your family than to risk death, imprisonment, separation, and prejudice to sneak into a country illegally? What if that was your best option? How, do, how does a Christian respond to these real-life, undeniable things? We lament. We weep. We mourn for ourselves, for those that we love, and for those that we hear about that we don't know. We don't ignore these things. We don't try to put a positive spin on it. If it is bad, the Christian thing to do is to say, this is bad. You know? We cry out to God with our pain, our worries, our grief, 
our injustice, our doubts, and our unanswered questions. And we empathize with those who are troubled and have compassion on those who are suffering, even if that suffering is due to circumstances we don't understand, or even if that suffering is due to a sinful choice on that person's behalf. We empathize with them and we lament, we mourn. As believers, we cannot plug our ears to the pain of others or live with the you got what you deserved mentality. Life is hard and life is complicated and sin is destructive. And the Psalms give us a pattern to follow and a language to use when life hits us with these inevitable and complex hardships. God does not intend for us to ignore or minimize the struggle of being a human in the world. He doesn't want us to whitewash all the pain and struggle and ambiguity out of life so that it will be more palatable. The Psalms give us living proof of this. Sage McCracken said this about lament. She said, Our sorrow is a display of honor, of valuing the loss, of knowing that this is not how things are supposed to be. It is crying out against death and disappointment while declaring the God-given affections of our hearts. Imagine the alternative. Imagine if your entire Christian experience has been devoid of any talk of suffering or pain or lament, uh, with little to no mention of the fact that life is going to be hard. And then the rain falls and the floods come. What would this do to you? What happens when your positive, encouraging God allows a devastating trial? Where do you go? I've seen this happen, and it's not pretty. We must be preparing ourselves and preparing each other and preparing our families for our eventual encounters with sorrow and pain and hardship and death. And if we're not, we're lying to each other. We're avoiding the truth. So we strive to understand the coexistence of this present, confusing, difficult, earthly reality and the reality of the world to come in light of God's unchanging character. So point B under this is that God is sovereign and good. Life is hard, but God is sovereign and good. The next part of Psalm 88 in verse 8, it says this. You've caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Or do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. So like I said, he stays in pain all the way to the end of Psalm 88. But do you see what's going on? He's in the midst of his pain. He's at his lowest point. He's in the depths of the pit, and he calls out to the Lord. Every day, he spreads his hands before God. He mentions God's steadfast love and his wonders and his faithfulness. And so he's in his darkest hour, and he's calling out to the Lord and subconsciously showing trust in him even as, as he's questioning God, even as he's expressing doubt in God. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't say you don't have steadfast love and faithfulness. He doesn't say, if he didn't think God was there, why would he call out to him? You know, like he's calling out to God because that has been the pattern of his life to call out to God. This is, this is evidence of, the, of, of work on the good days where he's been saturating himself with Scripture. He understands God's character. He understands who God is. And so when he's at his worst, and he's feeling bad, and he's mad at God, he's still calling out to God, you know? Because God is still good. God is still who he says he is. 
Um, the same is true in, in Psalm 42. Uh, so kind of parale- paralleling, is that right? Paralleling Psalm 88, Psalm 42. Uh, in verse 4 uh, in Psalm 42, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So he's remembering worshiping God with his people. He's remembering when things were right. They felt right and they felt good. They are not now, but he's remembering. And then he says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon. My soul is cast down, and because of that, I remember you. You know, he's he's preaching to himself. He does not feel good. He does not feel hopeful. He does not feel full of praise. So he's preaching to himself, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. You're not right now, but you're going to again. You know, this is what we have to do. This is what we have to prepare ourselves for. Because hoping in God is not a vain hope. God is who he says he is. The earth is full of his steadfast love. Righteousness and justice go before him. He heals the brokenhearted and binds their wounds. He is a father to the fatherless. He lifts up those who are bowed down. He turns mourning to dancing. He is our shepherd who leads us by still waters and prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Bread of Life, the Way, the Truth, and the Life, the Light of the World, and on and on and on and on and on. God is good and God is sovereign and he is worthy to be trusted in our times of trouble. We have to hope in God, for we will again praise him. We aren't right now, but we will. This is what we have to prepare ourselves for. We have to prepare ourselves for when we don't feel it, and we have to preach it to ourselves. We have to trust in something that is objective and true, even though we can't feel it as true in that moment. His character is worthy to be imitated as we empathize with others who may be suffering. We can be with people in their grief because God is with us in ours. Emmanuel means God with us. It wasn't just like God sent us a buddy in Jesus. God sent us someone to be with us in our grief, to be with us in our sin, to be with us in our suffering. When my mom was sick, I, I don't remember much of what my friends said to me. But I remember that my friends were there, you know. Andy brought bananas and water to the hospital, and she was there for three minutes. She had to go. But she, she was there, you know. Bryce showed up at the, one of the lowest points in my life with the giantest, most wonderful Mapco Coke I've ever put into my mouth, right? Um, Blake came and just hung out in the waiting room and did some work on his computer, right? He was just there. Um, Bryce also, uh, he, there was a, an obnoxious family in the ICU waiting room being all loud and crazy and carrying on, having a good time, which you're not really supposed to do in the ICU. And uh, we were trying to sleep, and Bryce was like, hey, um, excuse me, hey, these guys have just had a really long day. It's been really hard. Would y'all mind going over there or whatever? And they, like, bowed up and got in his face and blah, 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 blah. They'll, they'll have blah, 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 you know. And uh, it was a big scene. Anyway, it was funny. But Bryce was there, you know. He was there for us. And, uh, and there are countless um, examples of this. I walked out in the hall the, the night my mom finally died. Um, she was in the hospital for 12 days. And when she finally died, I walked out in the hall, and uh, the whole leadership team was just there. And they weren't standing there with words of encouragement and, uh, and, and tracks and flowers and whatever. They were just there. 
They were, they were there for me, and they were praying, and, and that's what mattered. And that's who we should be to people who are suffering. That's who we should be to people who are in grief. Because one day we're going to be there ourselves, and we're going to need each other, you know? That's the example that Jesus set for us. Um, when we are the ones weeping, we feel his presence more strongly when the church is present with us. Um, when I think about how a Christian should respond to pain and suffering and hardship, I'm reminded of uh, this really great hymn by uh, a hymn writer named Ann Steele. Um, we haven't sung any of our hymns yet, but they're really, really good. And there's a bunch of them on the Indelible Grace albums. Today's kind of a big advertisement for Indelible Grace. So <laughs> I almost wore my Indelible Grace shirt, and I was like, wait, no, I can't do that. I'm talking about Indelible Grace too much. Um, but there's this, this hymn by Ann Steele called Dear Refuge of My Weary, Weary Soul. And it reminds me a lot of the honesty and the faith that we see in Psalms. The words are going to be on the screen. I'm going to read this to you, and you can just read along. But uh, it says this, uh, the first verse. It says, Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. But oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail, and all my hopes decline. Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust, and still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. Thy mercy, seat, thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. Thy mercy seat is open still. And here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. Amen. So God is, life is hard. God is sovereign and he is good. And C, under point two, is that mourning will turn to dancing. Mourning will turn to dancing. Psalm 147 uh, says, uh, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 23, uh, in verse 5, says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely. Not, not like, surely you must be joking. Or, surely you don't mean that. No, like, surely. Definitively, yes. No diggity whatsoever. Right? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It is a done deal. The broken heart will be mended. The wounds of sin and circumstance will be healed. The pain of this life is real. And the glorious truth of the life to come, when all creation is redeemed, is equally as real. So we lament our sin, and we mourn the pain and the grief of life on earth. But we lament in hope. Not an un uncertain, vague, like, wishing you know, wishing upon a star or crossing our fingers, it's an unshakable hope because Jesus will return. And this is going to be the epilogue to our suffering and our pain. This is going to be the ending. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And later on it says, He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are honest. We thank you that you understand our pain, you understand our suffering, and you are with us through it. Help us to acknowledge the pain and the reality of our sin and to confess and repent. Help us to mourn the pain of of life, but to trust you in it. Help us to be with those who are suffering, who are mourning, who are in pain, and to show your grace and your mercy to them. We love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Psalms and the truth they show us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.